Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Glad Tidings, The Athletic's Everton Football Club podcast. It's me, Greg O'Keefe, and Patrick Boyland covering another win for the Blues on the back of another defeat for the Blues. It's the, that sort of season, isn't it, where you never quite know what's coming around the corner, but generally, uh, as we speak on Thursday lunchtime, Everton are sitting in a pretty nice looking position of sixth on the table, two games in hand, and uh, spirits are up once again. Pad, you were the man for us covering the Leeds game last night. As I say, it does come on the back of a very, very, very contrasting performance. But let's start with the positives. Um, that was some first half last night at Allen Road, wasn't it? Yeah, it was chalk and cheese, really, when you compare it to what we saw on Saturday at Goodison. Obviously, yeah. after that Newcastle match, Carlo Ancelotti was really quite critical, vocal in his criticism of the, of the Everton team and the players, effectively saying that they they were lazy, weren't committed enough. Whether you agree with that or not, that's what he said. And he kind of demanded a response. I suppose all eyes were on whether he did elicit a response at Ellen Road. And I would strongly suggest that he did, mm. even though it wasn't always easy at times for Everton. You mentioned the first half performance there. I thought it, that was really good. Really, really good. Full of commitment, endeavour. The kind of things that Ancelotti said he wanted from the game. Mm. But also some nice football as well. I mean, we've we've almost kind of pigeonholed Everton a little bit into being a, a reactive side, a side that defends and then looks to hit on the break or or from set pieces. The the passing move that brought about Gilfie Sigurdsson's first goal really was excellent, in in my opinion. Particularly, particularly the ball from Andre Gomez to to spring Luca Dean, and then Luca Dean's cross too. So. Yeah, good, a good performance. I'm glad glad we're doing the podcast after that, as opposed to the, <laughs> the, the, New, the Newcastle game. I couldn't, I, I couldn't watch match of the day. I couldn't watch any football after that Newcastle game. I was just, uh, let's just say I was disgruntled. Um, yeah. And yeah, it wasn't the best. Well, what did you make of the kind of the reaction and the response from, from Saturday? I, as a sort of hint at there, I just thought it was a complete contrast. And on one hand, it's frustrating because... You know, it's natural to wonder where where was those where were those levels uh, at Goodison. Um, but as you said, you know, Ancelotti addressed that. He made the point, and I was, I was, so, I was pleased to to hear him being so blunt and being so outspoken. You know, he's one to defend his team more often than not, but when it's required, he does dig them out. I think about Wolves, Wolves and Chelsea last season, and certainly at the weekend, you know, lazy, like you say there. That's quite a stark thing to say about well, professional athletes, isn't it? You know, and then <laughs> he, he said it, made the point, you know, didn't run enough. He, again, he was quite outspoken about Richarlison, for example. And for all those bad points, that first half, yes, last night was absolutely scintillating. Um, it was breathless, wasn't it? You know, we out leads leads. And you wonder whether they could keep it up. And I think it's testament to 
a lot of the work they're doing that they were able to keep up as long as they were and establish the platform that they needed. But I mean, yeah, that pre-assist from Andre Gomez. I know you and a couple of other Everton uh, um, <laughs> analysts who, who, who were familiar with it were chatting about it on Twitter before and it made me smile because uh, I take the mickey out of David, uh, a friend of ours, about pre-assist. But, <laughs> you know, it's all part of the game and, and that was some pre-assist for Gomez, wasn't it? I thought Gomez was loads better yesterday, possibly one of his best performances this season. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I tend to agree with that. And certainly when Carlo Ancelotti spoke, after the Leeds game, he, he did single out Gomez. He spoke about Robin Olsen and, and Beg Godfrey, who I think were both excellent. But Ancelotti said he thought Gomez was Everton's man of the match, not just in terms of the way he used the ball, but also what, what he described as almost tactical discipline in that central midfield role. We've already said there, there was that wonderful ball out to Luca Dean for, for Sigurdsson's goal. Um, and I, I think we are seeing Gomez start to improve he's not he's not always been consistent he's not always I think brought an awful lot to the team and certainly I've, I've wondered at times in, in a two-man fit midfield where he fits in he answered some of those questions last night he obviously needs to continue to do that I just think he's really good it's it's, it's a very narrow skill set but he's really good and making sure Luca Dean and Richarlison get the ball on that left-hand side just just yes. playing from the, yeah. the left of the midfield himself if, if he's got his niche but it, it's that. He's not a defensive midfielder as such. We did see him carry the ball against Leeds at Ellen Road. And he was very good at that earlier on in his career when he was a little bit more explosive. Yeah. Injury did not help. But I think he's one of those guys that would benefit now from if he is going to play and he is going to be one of Everton's main men in midfield, he would benefit from racking up five, six, seven, eight games consecutively in, in which he, he would then be able to to kind of get a bit of consistency together. Like, like you say, though, ch- chalk and cheese. Uh, I think it's a little bit reductive to say Saturday's defeat was all about a lack of energy and endeavour. I yeah. still believe, actually, that when push comes to shove, Everton are just not very good at this moment in time at breaking down teams. When they have more of the ball, they're more suited to doing what they did against Leeds and Leicester and Wolves at times, where they absorb that pressure and then look to spring out. That's the next step for Everton, as we've said before. The next step is being able to do both, being able to have 60% of the ball and win and to be able to have 40% of the ball and win. The better at the latter at the moment, which tends to suggest they need more, more ball players. But there were, there's something quite thrilling about watching kind of Ducore and Gomez and even Ben Godfrey from centre-back at times marauding forward with the ball, breaking through the lines. It was like the charge of the light brigade almost, wasn't it? At times for, for Everton in, in, in that game at Ellen Road. Um, really enjoyable first half. A slight chain that they made it so nervy after the break because in, t- in typical Everton fashion, it didn't it didn't become a, a win where they were able to coast. They needed to fight until mm. the death and, and kind of squeak over the line in the end. Yeah, they did, didn't they? In fairness, you know, Leeds were a good, a good side and... Our regression in the second half, if you like, was as much about, I think, them sort of really refining their game plan or, or getting their game plan back on track and doing what they're good at more. Uh, and, and plus, we've we blown out a little bit by by about an hour, I think. But um, I think you're right. I think it's definitely about being able to do both. And that's what's frustrating at the moment. Um, you know what? I've got a feeling that when Alan is fit, and we're playing likes of Newcastle. Well, we'll be playing Newcastle again, but similar side. Let's say the bottom half. If we can go back to that early season four three three with 
Gomez, say, uh, and then Alan and Decore, and then James, Richarlison, and Dominic Calvert-Lewin, or Richarlison slash King. Um, I think we might we might be able to recapture those levels. Yeah, you, you would suggest there's no reason why not. I actually think Alan's been a massive miss. Yeah. While Everton have done well, I would say in his absence on the whole, Tom Davis covered yeah. a, a little bit of Andre Gomez covering and Abdullah Decore just basically filling in wherever he's needed to and filling in well wherever he's needed to. Having somebody the cal- calibre of Alan back, I think helps a lot. We saw before he went off against Leicester, he was dictating the tempo of the game. He's not just a, a ball winner. He's not just a destroyer. He was making Everton tick and Everton controlled that midfield, in my opinion, at the King Power before Alan went off. So to have him back in contention, as he should be soon, I think is, is obviously massive for Everton from a depth and from a from a first team point of view. You have to give a couple of those lads that have filled in credit because results on the whole have been good. Newcastle was kind of an aberration. If you look at the the picture now over two, three months, that was kind of the exception to the rule, that dip in performance. will be great to see him back and, and that will give Everton a timely boost because they, they are still in that, at this moment in time, still in that race for the Champions League, aren't they? <laughs> uh, yeah, I tend, yeah, they are. No, they absolutely are, especially with the games in hand they've got. You're right. Um, I think it, it uh, feels like it's beyond us um, until we can address that inconsistency. But, Sometimes we forget that there's quite a lot of the season to go. So, um, you know, with the games we've got in hand, half, just under, very much just under half. So um, it would be premature to say it's compl- it's a complete non-starter. Um, and of course, we don't know how our leaner, slightly meaner squad will respond in the second half of the season. Let's talk mm. about that slightly tweaked squad. Monday night was... Uh, a late one for you and I and countless other Evertonians who probably were checking the Twitter and feeds and looking at the app and whatever. Um, but Everton did do a lot of business, most of it out and a little bit of the really interesting stuff in. Let's quickly start with the outgoings because there are quite a few. So I'll say maybe identify the key ones because we might be there all day if we go into <laughs> With no disrespect, but you've been Ingebees of this world. But but the ones that, that are significant to the squad it stands, obviously Cenk Tosin went on loan. To Besiktas, uh, we saw Anthony Gordon, who's figured a lot this season or, or a relative amount this season, go on loan to Preston. And obviously, Yannick Balassi earlier in the day joined Borough. I felt that Ellis Sims, of course, who'd been on the bench a couple of times, and Jared Brandwaite, who'd been on the had played this season, had gone out last week. So the squad was being whittled down. We were already short an attacker, weren't we? Even with Tosin, really. And then with Tosin going out, it became quite imperative. And you and I wrote a piece about what happened in terms of getting King over the line, but it was it was important, wasn't it? Yeah, I think I've, I've felt like a bit of a broken record over the past month or so talking about what Everton needed in, in January. And of course, there did need to be a focus from a financial point of view on trimming the squad and getting what some people will class as deadwood out of the door permanently or or otherwise. Good to see, I think, Anthony Gordon, Jared Branthwaite and Ellis Sims go out. If they're not going to be playing regular football with Everton in the first team, then I think it's best that they cut their teeth in the the EFL. So really excited to see how Gordon does at Preston in particular. Uh, Keep an eye on their fortunes over the coming months and hopefully we can write some stuff on site. Jared Branthwaite's already doing very well, as we know. And as we mentioned last week in a, in a little bit of a rant at Neil Warnock, um, we all know how well he's doing at Blackburn. 
Ella Sims has scored a couple of goals already for Blackpool. So, so yeah, th- that made sense to me. What I, what I would say is, I, I know people were kind of screaming about the need for a forward, and I agreed. But I also agreed in the summer. I thought I thought Everton needed somebody to step up if something happened to Calvert Lewin or or Richarlison. And I was never under the impression that Tosin would be or should be that man, given his his the contribution over his time at Everton. I mean, he, he did pretty well under Sam Allardyce. Obviously, scored a couple of goals after joining in the, in the January. Finished rather well, and he has finished well sporadically. But what we have to remember is that for a couple of windows now or more, Everton have been trying to get rid of him. They deemed him surplus to requirements, and he was basically mm. he was he was a backup in name. But not much else when he was on the bench in in the early part of the season or the mid part of the season. So that made sense to me. The the only thing is they they did need to get somebody in, and that only happened. That could only happen once they cleared the room. Once they got rid of Tosin, Balassi, Lossell, various others. That's where the wiggle room came from in the budget. So Josh King arrived. What what do you make of? Of his signing, I've seen kind of mixed opinions on on Twitter. I, I'm I'm tending to tilt towards the positive end of the spectrum a little bit. Are you agreed? Yeah, I am. Mate. Yeah, I'm, very, I'm I'm absolutely tending to tilt towards the positive. Look, look he's you know for for the circumstances that we found ourselves in uh, towards the end of the window are the financial constraints because of FFP uh, and the availability of players in January, which is a notoriously difficult month. Blah blah blah. Cliche. How I know. I think he was a, a really good, shrewd, savvy signing. And as we mentioned in our piece and as you spoke to people, it wasn't a panic buy. It's someone who's been on the radar as far back as the summer. He's someone yeah. with a proven track record in the Premier League. Uh, I was surprised when we were looking into him um, to see that he, you know, a 16, 17 season, he banged in 16 goals, put him behind uh, it was when Callum Wilson was, was injured and he was playing as a centre-forward. And that only put him behind Lukaku and Aguero and Kane in that season. So you know, that's not a bad tally in a struggling side. I think he got 12 a couple of seasons after. He knows where the back of net is. He's quick. Loves Goodison. <laughs> loves scoring against Dawson. Loves scoring at Goodison. He's a squad player, but he, I think he brings something. He's not here to make up the numbers. So I mm. think... I'm sure he's going to be pleased with a leaner squad. Uh, managers just seem to prefer it, don't they? This 25 and under. Maybe it helps to have people who are not getting a look in away from the training ground, bluntly. There's a bit more of a buoyant atmosphere. People aren't complaining. There's not not, not as many frowns or sniping. That's not to suggest that the lads who've gone out were in that in that ilk, far from it. But King comes, and as we found out, he comes incentivized, doesn't he, as well? It, it, it's up to him to make the most of this, as long or as short as he's here. Yeah, I, th- I think this is a good deal for Everton because instead of it being a, a case where they offer a player in his late 20s a long contract, as we have done in the past, it is very short term. And I think that creates a sense of motivation for jo- Joshua King. He likes to be called Joshua, by the way, doesn't he? We, we were told the other day. <laughs> he does, yeah. Josh, Josh. yeah. Um, I've probably called him Josh twice in this, but yeah, he does, yeah. I'm almost almost certain that I'll need to be corrected in every single piece I write about him <laughs> between now and the end of the season. Um, uh, probably. <laughs> but I think I think it's a good deal for Everton for a number of reasons. The first is that they did need a forward and they've got a versatile Premier League proven forward. King, as Ancelotti has said, can probably play across the forward line. He could be a centre forward just off the main striker, even left or right. 
brings pace. I don't think we have enough pace, but we haven't had enough pace in the in the squad over the last twelve to I mean twelve months and beyond. Um, but the fact that it's short term, the fact that he's only here until the end of the season, and if he wants to stay for longer, he will need to play out of his skin to earn that new contract. I think is is a real incentive for him. And certainly when we've when we've spoken to people at No, Joshua, uh, that's what they've been saying too. Not only that, but people also tell us how good a deal it was for Everton. And I, I know there have been reports in the media that this is a fee of up to £5 million. Um, the suggestion we've had so far is that it was nowhere near that. It was a nominal sum. And I think you can read into what a nominal sum is. It's certainly yeah. not £5 million, certainly not £5 million pounds for, for a player here for six months. So it'll be interesting to see how he does. It'll be interesting to see how he does. I, I mean, at, at some point you would assume he'll play in a front three with Richarlison and, and Calvert-Lewin, but it might just give, particularly Richarlison, a little bit of a kick up the backside. He's, he's got another option there, somebody that can do similar things to him in terms of driving forward with the ball. Um, and we, yeah, like we said, Everton did need another option. So on a very on a very short-term basis, I think this makes sense. It made less sense to me when people were talking about longer contracts, particularly mm-hmm. with Fulham and other clubs. That's the kind of thing that I think we need to be careful of and need to avoid given FFP issues and potential FFP issues, should say. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think so for that reason, it just ticks every box, doesn't it? I just think it was a smart deal. It really was. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham premieres May 2nd on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. So the players that went out, again, I don't think we've addressed uh, Tosin, I think Gordon. It's it's a good opportunity for him to play consistent, competitive, uh, good level of football, um, and just come back a bit stronger, a bit more robust, um, a bit more ready to step up. Um, I thought he started like really, really well this season, and then took a little half step back, and that's so natural given his age and the big, big things to come from him. But um, I think this will be will be helpful for him going forward so uh, that's all good and um, what's not all good was the <laughs> well I mean it was all good in terms of it was interesting and it was certainly getting trolled it was quite there was a comedic aspect to it but our former manager Ronald Koeman spoke to Alan Shearer athletic columnist colleague of ours you're always getting the beers in on a Friday big Al isn't he <laughs> in the pub that we never go to they had a, a, a chat this week about many things, but Everton obviously cropped up. If you haven't seen the Ferrari over social, uh, this is what Ronald Koeman had to say about his time at Goodison. What do you think went wrong at, uh, at, at Goodison, at Everton? Uh, it, was, it was difficult, that period, because Everton uh, is, 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 is a club who, and also the fans who expect uh, 
sometimes too much and i think sometimes they are living still in the, in in the past about the the great seasons what they had in everton my first season was really a good one i think we ended sixth or seventh on the table and uh, yeah, yeah. lukaku romelu lukaku scored 25 goals and and we had great home games against city we won 4-0 we we beat all the big ones and 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 it was great but to do the next step that's you know that's the most difficult one uh, mm-hmm. and 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 in that we 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 spent a lot of money we signed uh, pickford we signed keen we signed uh, at that time sigurdsson and some more players but but the the big miss was what that we did not have a striker like uh, lokaku and, and and that was that was really painful we were close to sign giru on that time and uh, and finally we started with uh, calvin lewin in, in as the number 9 yeah. and, and and but at that time too young and but if you see him playing now he's, he's really a good player and 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 i liked it but that was a really a, a difficult situation that we lost lukaku we lost 25 goals and that was uh, difficult and maybe when we we signed wayne rooney Maybe we and we had Klaassen. Maybe we had some players in the same positions at that time, and that was difficult. That was difficult. But the most important, what what we missed at that time, was really a goal scorer. There we have it, uh, Ronald Koeman summarising in uh, not surprisingly subjective um, tones a, a period of his time at Everton. Pad, what what jumps out at me is well, actually. I'll start by saying when you hear him speaking, it it doesn't come across as vindictive as it vindictive is the wrong word, but as offensive, let's say, as it does when you see the screen grab and when you see it in print, which is funny for a, a, a sort of essentially a, a writer to say. But I think when you hear him say it, it's a little bit more reflective. However, it's just so easy to pick holes in it, isn't it? It, so it, it just feels like an ab- <laughs> abdication responsibility when he talks about yeah maybe we had too many players in the same position well maybe we did and whose fault was partly that where'd you start with this Pat? well that, that that's it as we were listening to that clip i was making a mental note of all the things i could pick flaws in so so the first one was that the idea that of course they did not replace lukaku adequately at the time but he needs to shoulder at least some of the blame with with Steve Walsh for that. A load mm. of number 10s and not many central strikers and a squad just completely lacking in balance after the first season. The stuff about Calvert-Lewin was interesting. Uh, I don't know how much credit necessarily he can take for Dominic Calvert-Lewin because, as he'd already mentioned there, he did try to sign other strikers. And if he'd signed those strikers, I don't think Calvert-Lewin would have been in the reckoning. The other thing that I remember quite vividly was Dominic Calvert-Lewin a centre-forward playing at right wing-back in a game, which is just, uh, I mean, I'm trying to find a word for this. Let's go ridiculous is, is probably the best way to describe that. And I think listening back to it, I mean, this is obviously his take on a, a very disappointing chapter, not not only in his own career, but also in Everton's recent history. I still think Everton are paying the price for most of the errors made, particularly in the transfer market. I, yeah. think, I still think we're seeing the legacy of that now in terms of what we're able to spend because players came on on big wages for big money and simply did not deliver 
for one mm. reason or another. He needs to shoulder some of the blame for that. I think the other thing is there was always a sense in comparison to his predecessor, Roberto Martinez, that while Martinez really bought into the idea of being at Everton and was basically there at Finch Farm, as we both know, round the clock, uh, Ronald Koeman spent one deadline day, uh, I think it was in the Algarve, but it might have been Mallorca. It was basically him. There was a picture of him doing the rounds on deadline day, and it was legit of him on a on his bike in the sun. Unfortunately, in his cycling shorts, which I didn't really particularly want to see anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the, the, a lot of things went wrong. It didn't ever feel like the right fit for Everton. Um, looking back with hindsight, it was a terrible fit for Everton because I think he saw oh. Everton as a stepping stone uh, and didn't really ever significantly put in the graft to get Everton where they needed to be. And of course, he was not the only one responsible at that time. A lot of people need to shoulder at least some of the blame, but he was not a good manager for Everton Football Club. And I still think we see the legacy of that even now. You know, he speaks about Lukaku. And again, what infuriates me is I remember countless times being frustrated when I, I, I heard about, you know, Lukaku's kind of talking up, leaving Everton and Everton being a stepping stone when he was away on international duty. And what is really not helpful is when you get a manager who effectively does the same. There was a point yeah. when I, rem- I remember Koeman saying that, speaking about Lukaku as if he was almost like his semi-agent and that, you know, it yeah. essentially talking up why he did have to move on at some point. It's not helpful at all. And he's crying about losing him there. Um, you know, for all his faults, Martinez, as you say, totally bought into Everton. And Koeman just felt like it was just one big golf swing of a project for him that um, utterly failed for him. And yeah. he, he gets rewarded for his mediocrity with the Holland job, one of the top jobs in international football. And then Barcelona. Yeah. I tell you what, we need to get his agent. Never mind Koeman. Needs to get, whoever does his deals needs to come and work with brands as part of a special Dutch delegation. <laughs> there's, some, there's something about... <laughs> There's something about failing at Everton and, and falling upwards, isn't there? Failing upwards, yeah. The better Martinez did, did the same thing, left in quite abject circumstances, and then it ends up as the, the manager for the Belgian national team. I'd guess that if he leaves the Belgian national team in the near future and he continues in the same vein as he has been, that he'd actually be in line for a pretty decent club job. If, if one came around, so maybe he's learned a bit, maybe he's adapted a bit over the years, Martinez. Maybe Koeman has as well. I, I don't see enough now of, of Barcelona to know, although they're not doing particularly well in the in the table, all things considered, and there, there seems to be issues over Lionel Messi's future as ever. Just going back to the quote itself, the one that's doing the rounds, I'm sure most people will have, have seen it as well as a social media graphic that, that both of us put out earlier in the week. It does show you that effectively there was a glass ceiling imposed by Koeman himself. You can talk all you want about clubs looking back on their past, but teams like Everton and Aston Villa and other sides have every right to aspire to be something more, to aspire to get back to those days. It doesn't mean just because at that moment in time, results aren't great, that you can't get back to where you were. I mean, where were Manchester City even 20 years ago? It's just such a weird argument, this kind of self-imposed glass ceiling, a little bit like we saw under under David Moyes. And I think it's all completely undermined that argument by Everton going out and getting Carlo Ancelotti as manager and having James Rodriguez as the marquee summer signing. 
it, it's, it just completely undermined. There's got to be vision. There's got to be ambition, all those kinds of things. If you're not getting there, then at least aspire to get there. Otherwise, what on earth is the point in being involved in, in this? Let, let's see. I, I think Everton as, a, as an institution are far more comfortable with themselves now than when Ronald Koeman was there. Much better atmosphere now compared mm. to when Ronald Koeman was there as well. That kind of standoffish persona that he adopted, not only with club staff, but also players. Chalk and cheese to, to what we see now with, with Ancelotti and the way they've fully bought in. A top, top class manager has fully bought into the ethos of the club. Frankly, it's a narrative that serves people who've, who've helped consolidate Everton's place outside the top clubs by their own failure. Yeah, It's an easy one to, to lean on. But I look, I know expectations um, are very, sometimes counterproductive at Everton, but that's where you need to be able to cope with that and to be resilient and come out the other side. And that's where I think we've got, hopefully now I've got a manager who's been there, seen it, done it, has actually got the managerial CV uh, to take that in his stride. And I, I saw, sorry, what I loved was seeing Ancelotti talking about how important it was to do something in the cup, but it can't become all-encompassing because, and at first you think, well, what do you mean there? But it, it's actually, it was the first time I've heard the managers talk about, well, no, we need to be, to keep our heads and we need to move forward, but not become strangled by the weight of expectation and choke at the big stage. And I think all too often under Moyes, Martinez, certainly under Koeman, we just haven't got that balance right. Yeah, I'd agree. And I'd say it's not only concerned with the record in cup competitions over the years and the barren run without silverware, but also look at Merseyside Derby and how getting a win in those games has become this kind of all-encompassing focus. Mm. Actually, in a way, while it's good to kind of be motivated for those games, I think Everton have almost psyched themselves out on occasion yeah. of being over, overly kind of up for the occasion, kind of ridiculous sendings off, whether you agree with them or not, or going to Anfield and either completely raising the white flag or playing in a ridiculous fashion, kind of high up the pitch as Marco Silva did at times and, and effectively becoming lambs to the slaughter. Ancelotti has got to stri- strike that balance right. And yes, I do, I, I do believe, by the way, that the Everton job is a difficult job because expectations are high. There's more money now than there has been for a good while because of Farhad Mashiri. And that in turn brings more expectation supporters. My dad, for example, he grew up watching Everton win trophies. So my dad still expects Everton to be that Everton. I I grew up in the 90s and had to watch Walter Smith. So it, it, it's slightly different um, in, in, in that regard. But everybody's everybody's entitled to their own opinion in, in this. Everyone is entitled to, to want more for Everton Football Club. And even though it is a difficult job and there is a weight of expectation, I think what it needs is it needs somebody right at the top, as you've kind of alluded to, the calm head that's able to filter the noise and to create lofty ambitions, but do so in a manageable and sustainable way. And you've got to hope that that's what Ancelotti will do. I'd suggest that if Carlo Ancelotti can't do it, I can't think of many others that could because because it is a tough job um, and he's about as as highly regarded and as decorated as you find anywhere. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Moving on from Ronald Koeman, um, thankfully. I did mention David Moyes in that mini rant when I saw managers that kind of butted up against the glass ceiling. That's possibly unfair, really, of me, because, of course, David Moyes was the last sign. We threatened to really smash that glass ceiling. It's it's yin and yang with Moyes and, and uh, the next step. And he could rather understandably point to not even a fraction of the financial backing, really, that subsequent managers had since Fahd Mashiri came along. But one time Everton did look like doing that was against David Moyes' Manchester United the season after he'd left when they felt like there was a really, there was a freshness under Roberto Martinez and there was an excitement in his first season and the results went hand in hand, and none more so than when we went to Old Trafford and beat them at Old Trafford for the first time in over 20 years. It was an absolutely fantastic evening. I remember it vividly uh, in 2013, December 2013. So we're going to do our throwback, and we're going to talk about that game. Manchester United nil, Everton won. I don't need to tell anyone who scored the goal, but Pad, what are your memories of Brian Oviedo doing the business there and Everton getting a very, very rare result the other end of the 62? I remember quite a lot about that night, actually, because it, it was quite a symbolic result for Everton. That obviously, under Moyes, they, they tended to perform well at home against some of those sides, but had a dreadful, dreadful away record mm. against yeah. all of them. And obviously, Martinez came in, was a breath of fresh air, a completely different style that he imposed on the, on the, the players and on the team. And Everton would kind of swat away certain sides. But they needed that kind of standout result away from home. I remember them going to the Etihad and going, uh, the, not the Etihad, the, the em, Emirates Stadium, sorry, and going toe-to-toe with Arsenal. And just, I mean, not even toe-to-toe, Everton just dominated Arsenal that day and, and, and thoroughly deserved to, to get over the line. Didn't. But the result against Manchester United was standout. And I remember the celebration. I don't know, <laughs> not just in the, in the stands, in the away end, but also Lukaku just going absolutely mental and beating the turf and Oviedo sliding away and, and all that kind of stuff. It, it felt like a big night and a big result. And I just came away from it. I don't know about you, but I came away from that night thinking, this Everton team can push on now. That's the yeah. kind of result that makes a difference. 
Absolutely, yeah, it really did feel like it. And I just just remember um, Oviedo on Sylvain Distan's shoulders at the end, and um, you could see what it meant to Everton. You could see what it meant to Martinez. You could see most more than anything else what it meant to the fans. I remember you know, the celebrations in the away end, and you know, I know to outsiders it might think like you're only talking about a win away at United. You know, why are we getting so excited? But it's that talking about that weight of expectation for so long going to the top four away from home and it's still an issue down in London but locally Anfield's still an issue but United and just choking and not getting results but under Martinez that season it felt like as much as it has for a long time like anything was possible away at home or away um, you know he got very close at the Emirates with that against uh, Arsenal as well but that night it worked and I remember the next day going up to Finch Farm and just the feeling of ebullience and Martinez uh, with a big grin on his face, sort of like a, almost like an excited schoolboy, you know, sort of telling anyone who'd listen about the. <laughs> it later became something that was used against him, but how thrilled he was with the passing stats, how many passes Everton had completed. You know, this was a massive step forward, and he had the comparison to the last time they'd gone there in the seasons before that. And you know, Everton had had X amount of more passes, and this for him was a symbol that they'd gone there with bravery and they'd gone there to be on the front foot. And all the things that later became Martinez, bingo, at that time felt like evidence we were going somewhere. Um, that whole season did, really. And what just remains so typically Everton part is that 72 points in God knows how many seasons beforehand would have easily got us fourth. But of course, it didn't that year, did it? <laughs> yeah, there's, there's something very Everton about that, as you, as you say. On the whole really fond memories of that season, certainly up to kind of the, the final, wasn't even a quarter really, final fifth, sixth of the campaign where they did start to, to unravel a little bit and um, went from being in a position after the Arsenal game, the big Arsenal win at Goodison, from looking like they would qualify for the Champions League, they were favourites. Mm. It kind of unravelled after that. And, and obviously Everton ended up finishing fifth. But what we ended up with, and hopefully I'm not doing anybody a disservice here. But Martinez came in and we still had that really secure framework, that structure in the defence. You had all the stalwarts. It was Jagielka, it was Distan, it was uh, Baines, Coleman, those guys. Gareth Barry and, um, and James McCarthy were obviously brought in as well to add to that. But this really solid defensive structure in place from the Moyes era, just with a bit of an extra sprinkle of quality on top with some of the additions. So the window where Lukaku was signed on loan and Barry and McCarthy came in late on, that was one of the better windows Everton have had for some time and just created the foundation for, for what we saw. This kind of amalgam of the best of Martinez and the best of Moyes. When it was solely one or the other, it never seemed to quite work. Martinez didn't have the defensive organisation. Moyes wasn't able to, to have the kind of the vision to push Everton on against the uh, the top sides. And it did unravel. It was sad that it unraveled the the way it did. But that, that season, Everton played some fantastic football, kind of front foot, aggressive. There was some tactical innovation as well. I remember Lukaku playing on the right of the attack against Arsenal with Naismith as a kind of false nine. And the whole purpose of that was just to get Lukaku running and committing Nacho Monreal who obviously just couldn't, could not deal with him um, at left-back. You know, so there's there some really good stuff to remember from that. And it was a, it was a very good team. It was. For it that was. year. <laughs> for that year. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
and not you know not least in many ways is what we talk about the midfield this season, Gomez and Alan and Decore, but certainly highlighted by that 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 period that season. But all that first season, of fairness, Gareth Barry and James McCarthy were sensational. So uh, fond memories of that. Uh, Brilliant win at Old Trafford. Just before we wrap up, a couple of things. Obviously, Calvert-Lewin back on the score sheet yesterday. Um, I did a piece last Saturday. Uh, horrific timing, really, by me, I have to say, uh, to coincide <laughs> with, with the Newcastle game. But, <laughs> but nevertheless, it, it was a piece about the um, how Everton sports science team have managed to get Dom Calvert-Lewin and Mason Holgate into the shape that they're currently in from the contrast to when, say, when they joined 2016 and 17, when they were just, um, admittedly, they're both growing lads, so certainly they were then, into the real physical units they are now. And we got some really nice insight and found out about how they've done that. And um, I was making notes, Pat, I don't know about you, but uh, I, I can see from looking in the Zoom, I can see that your kitchen's already absolutely festooned with uh, protein, creatine, and uh, your personal your personal chefs working away there in the background. Well, no. <laughs> What's anybody- up some pre-training supper for you? No, anybody that knows me knows that's absolutely not the case, unfortunately. <laughs> um, it, it's quite quite clear, I think, uh, anybody that knows me. But but yeah, it, it's fascinating to get that insight. And I, I, I did feel sorry for you because of the timing of the piece. But I do <laughs> urge, urge people to go and read it anyway, because I think there's a story here in what kind of professional sports teams do to almost engineer <laughs> these top quality high caliber athletes the transition and there's some there are some photographs from the early days of Calvert-Lewin and and Holgate's Everton career and to see the transition from that to where they are now particularly with Calvert-Lewin I'd say it really is quite stark and dramatic to see that that turnaround amazing that they've been able to do it as well Everton's medical team and um, sports science team they've been able to do it in a way that's not reduced the fast twitch of somebody like Calvert-Lewin. He's still absolutely rapid. He's still great at jumping in the air. I remember Lukaku, for example, bulking up a bit. Ross Barkley bulking up, both of them at Everton. And they almost lost half a yard. But that's not happened this time with with, with Calvert-Lewin and, and Mason Holgate. I'd, I'd, love to, I'd love to see a race between Calvert-Lewin, Holgate and Ben Godfrey as well, who we've, we've somehow managed to go over half an hour without mentioning another exceptional performance from him against Leeds. Everton have got loads of athletes at the moment. That's what that's what I think is really obvious. And that doesn't mean they're not good footballers as well, but they, they are kind of supreme athletes, I'd say. I totally agree. And don't worry, we're hearing a lot more from me and you on Ben Godfrey anyway. Well, yeah, that's on the on the app at the moment. So if you haven't had to read that, please do. And likewise, uh, take in the piece Paddy and I wrote about Josh King, Joshua King, <laughs> and um, why it was such a, a clever bit of late business and the background to the transfer, how it got over the line. Um, and indeed, if you just want to celebrate a fantastic night of football, read Paddy's match piece from the game on Wednesday night in Yorkshire. Well, that one flew by. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, we'll be back next week following hopefully a big night in Manchester on Saturday. Fingers crossed for that. Thanks for listening, Blues, and speak to you next week. The Athletic.